What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a lot of money in the process. And on this show, I sit down with these ND Hackers to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. So we're going to talk about uh, water cooler trivia. You've been emailing me for like a year and a half, and I almost never invite anybody on the show who comes over email every now and then. But here you are, and it's because of the way your emails progressed. It was like 2019. Hey, Coraline, just did an interview on Andy Hackers, making like, you know, $10,000 a year. Think it'd be good for the podcast. I was like, ah, we'll wait a little bit. And then like every few months after that, it was like up to $50,000 a year, up to $100,000 a year. What was the last email you sent me? I think you were like 200. Probably 200 or 250. I don't know when I sent you the email, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, $250,000 a year. So I was like, ah, oh, Jesus, Colin's crushing it. I don't know what happened during the pandemic, but like your app is blowing up. Uh, what is water cooler trivia? So water cooler trivia is a weekly trivia app. It's basically that simple. I love that. I feel like I can explain it to my grandma because my grandma gets my monthly investor letters and reads them and always gives me feedback, which is lovely. But we send a weekly trivia quiz to work teams. And so it's typically over email or it's over Slack or Microsoft teams. And you answer 10 questions or more or less, depends how you customize it. And then the next day, the results come out. So it's sort of asynchronous, fill it out during the day, Monday, results come Tuesday, and there's a leaderboard over time. And it's just something that's fun and easy. I think that's not a chore. And so people have latched onto it and it happens to work really good in both virtual or physical or hybrid virtual physical or whatever we're gonna call it moving forward. But it was just a random idea that was what we really called beer money idea. Like bootstrapped it for two years with friends, two and a half years before any of us took a full-time leap. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it is super cool. I'm, I'm on your website right now. And like the description really is as simple as you make it. It says your team's new favorite weekly ritual. You choose the trivia schedule and categories. We write the questions and we grade the results. It's all automated. It's asynchronous. Couldn't be easier. And you've got like some pretty cool customers on here. You've got Strava, Amazon as a customer, Impossible Foods, the Dallas Mavericks. I'm just imagining, <laughs> imagining the basketball players playing trivia, but I'm sure it's the back office. <laughs> I wish it was actually like Luka Doncic and Mark Cuban, <laughs> but this is one of their marketing teams. <laughs> I have to confess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you've got yeah. Nike on here, uh, Warby Parker. You've got Lyft. Is Lyft on here because you, you used to work at Lyft? Yes. I mean, also because they're a paid customer, but that was one of the easier sales to make. It's different at every company, which is kind of fun. Like Amazon, I think it's I think it's six different teams, each have their own like trivia group. And it's a DC in Queens, like a distribution center in Queens, the staff there, or it's like a, one of the Amazon logistics teams of tech workers. Whereas something like Impossible or Strava, it's the whole company and like one group, a couple hundred people, you know, competing each week. It sort of depends on the company size. So how does it feel to know that everybody at Impossible Foods is using your trivia app? It's pretty awesome. I mean, it's not, I'm not changing anyone's life. And I'm totally cool with that. We're just making the week a little more fun. Our initial slogan, which we removed, was make Mondays suck less. Because I think the Sunday scaries are so real. And we default to Monday. So it's just a Monday morning trivia quiz. And so I like saying it's it's the one email you don't dread in your inbox. And that was the whole goal all along. It was like, I have something you don't dread in your inbox. And so I feel really good that thousands or tens of thousands of people a week have their week just a tiny bit better. Let's talk about some of the finances behind this because you're making 250 grand in revenue every year, but you're also like, you know, doing a lot of work. You're coming up with trivia questions, you're grading these trivia questions. What are the expenses like to run something like this? Yeah, it's funny. You know, we're bootstrapped and I studied finance and accounting, so I feel like I have a 
okay grasp on that stuff. So I'm comfortable just using Google Sheets as our financial software. But the line item is literally COGS. And the only thing I consider COGS, cost goods sold, is trivia writing and quiz grading <laughs> and everything else like falls into other categories. And I think it's probably like the only PL on earth where the COGS is just writing and grading trivia. Like one to two thousand dollars a month for grading and one to two thousand dollars a month for writing trivia questions. For the vast, vast majority of the company, I've written the trivia questions. So I've written something like 6,000 trivia questions. And there's really an art to it. There's a lot you learn really quickly. And like what is and isn't a good trivia question. And then also what is and isn't a good trivia question in terms of wanting the responses to be auto-graded successfully by our algorithms. Because everything that gets manually approved or like moderated is expensive. Yeah. I mean, you've got a ton of people using it. You said you've got, I think, 800 paid companies as clients. 4 million people have responded to trivia questions. It's a lot of grading to do. It's like 100,000 people responding every week. And this is like a free form answers. You know, people aren't choosing, they're not taking a box on a multiple choice thing. They're like writing in their answer. They can write any sentence they want to. And then you somehow have built system. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they put like funny jokes in there. They put uh, probably some obscene stuff in there. You got to look through. How do you auto grade these free form answers? Before I jumped on the call with you, I had an email from a customer that I think is a great example. It was a question about some famous movie speech. And the answer is Independence Day, the movie where the character gives a really rallying speech when the aliens are invading. And it's now the world's Independence Day. And the person had written on their answer sheet, ID4, period. And so our algorithm said, that's wrong. And then our content moderator said, yeah, ID4 is not the answer. The answer is Independence Day. This person emailed me today showing me a picture of the an original movie poster from 1996. And they said, hey, this movie was actually marketed as ID4 in all of the like marketing collateral 25 years ago. And so I went back and I was like, all right, you get credit. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you clearly knew the answer to that question. So I think that's a really good answer. So basically, when we add that question to our system, we say Independence Day is an acceptable answer. We say the Independence Day is an acceptable answer. And then when we're grading what people submit, we are basically stripping out vowels. Sometimes you'll strip out consonants. You'll do some fuzzy matching stuff. But we have a high, really high bar for wanting low error rates. Tell me about the, the process of coming up with questions, because if you've written 6,000 trivia questions, I'm sure you've learned a ton about what makes a good trivia question and what makes, what makes a bad one. We do a thing where you can choose a personalized category. And so as an example, like a corporate finance team at Walmart literally writes Walmart. And so their last question every single week is a question about Walmart. Or Warby Parker in New York has NYC. So their last question each week is about NYC. And so these personalized categories make our life much harder. It's kind of a classic, like, do things that don't scale. Like I have to write a question about Cadillac Fairview, which is a Canadian real estate conglomerate. And I've done that for 26 straight weeks. <laughs> like, it's getting out of control. Are they paying you more to do that? No. Any group that signs up can have a personalized category. We've taken a bunch of like what I would call clever things. So we don't make it as clear you can write anything in. There's a shuffle button that shuffles what seem like random categories, but actually it's things we have a deep bench of questions for. And there's other clever tricks like that. But I, I love that you can get a question about anything. Like. A company that focuses on fermentation gets strange biology every week. And so coming up with a question, that actually makes it a lot easier. The hardest part of a trivia question is you don't know anything. I mean, I live on Wikipedia and we make sure to donate to Wikipedia every year. That's one of our business expenses because we wouldn't exist without them. What kind of person do you have to be to love writing trivia questions as much? I mean, I think the prototypical Andy Hacker wants to basically automate everything you know, hire someone from the Philippines to basically write all these questions and pay them like almost nothing. You know, just like, how do I, how do I automate all of this and basically just collect the cash? But you're, you're writing thousands and thousands of trivia questions, just scrolling through Wikipedia, reading a bunch of random facts about like Walmart and strange biology. Uh, tell me about, tell me about you. I grew up loving trivia. One of six kids and we would watch Jeopardy was in Chicago and Jeopardy's on at 3.30 there every day. 
but it was right after school. And so I'd come home from school, bring a couple friends, get a couple siblings, like a parent or two would be around. And we keep score, write down our answers, which can get pretty aggressive. And it ultimately, unfortunately, is just like, who's the fastest reader? Because we don't wait for Trebek to finish. <laughs> I knew you had to be like a huge trivia nerd to do something like this because yeah, it's a lot. It sounds like a lot of work. Is that how the idea was sort of born? Like you did so much trivia, you're watching so much Shepard, you're hosting trivia nights, you decided like there just needs to be a trivia app. I had an internship at Bain & Company, like big consulting firm. And I wanted to like make my name known around the office, honestly, like as a, a 21 year old in your first office job or 20, 21 year old. And I would send around a Google form each week to the whole office. I got approved by like the social committee and it was a Google form of 10 trivia questions. And then I would hand grade the responses and put together like a crappy Photoshop of like, you know, a partner's face on a Jeopardy podium if they won and then email that around. And it was just a way to kind of get my name out there realistically. But I thought it was so funny that the people who played most regularly were partners, like super senior people who I would assume are busier, but I was wrong. They're the least busy people. Their whole, their whole job is to outsource and delegate everything. Yeah. And I realized that, oh, this company likes it too. And so eventually the, the kind of funny thing is I was thinking, then I was doing MailChimp and Google Forms just on my own kind of hacking away. And I went to Carpet Drink with a friend on like a Wednesday night. And it was the same friend I hosted trivia with in college. And this was like four years later. And I was like, hey, I have this idea. And he said, I have a software engineer looking for a side project, like of a roommate. My roommate's a software engineer looking for a side project. So I was kind of like, oh, that's too kismet. Like, I have to meet it. <laughs> so yeah, then we just hacked it together in late 2017. I'm checking out your prices on your website. And you're mentioning you don't raise prices on people who want the custom trivia questions. And the pricing is you get four quizzes each month. So basically one a week. And it's $1 per user per month. You know, teams of probably hundreds of people who are paying you hundreds of dollars. And you have teams of tiny amounts of people who are paying you just a few, bu few bucks. Does your pricing start off this way? Have you like raised your prices since you started? Or has it always been as cheap as $1 per user per month? We've never changed. It's for sure a problem. We know we should charge more. It's so cheap. Like we're very aware. And honestly, it's even cheaper because we do a 50% nonprofit and school discount. And we actually have a lot of schools and nonprofits. And not like for students, but a group of teachers at a high school. So the principal pays. And then like the teachers have something to talk about in the break room. It's actually really fun. And then they'll pause for three months over the summer. And like, yeah. I was really afraid of the disincentives. I think I'm just wrong and it's okay. But the disincentives of adding someone new, if it increases your price. So like very typical usage-based pricing, right? Like add Cortland to it. And then it's one more dollar per month. And, and then we're varying. Last month, we charged you $18. This month, 17 Like that just scares me. It's too much to think about. And, and so we said tiers, up to 10 people, 10 bucks a month, up to 25, 25 a month, up to 50, 50 a month. That's smart. I like the tier system. But yeah, $1 per user per month seems super cheap. But I guess it depends on who you're talking to. You know, if you're selling to Lyft, they're like, yeah, they could probably pay like 10 bucks a user, not even blink. If you're selling to like, I don't know, a group of construction workers who play after the job, like they probably don't want to pay more than a dollar. Yeah, it's, it's, it's opened up really different markets, which is good and bad. I mean, not just indie hacker, but any business. We make a lot of mistakes in terms of people say like, you need to know your ideal customer. And to me, I'm kind of like, I don't know, as you saw, it's the Dallas Mavericks or it's a group of high school teachers or it's the team at Lyft. Like it's pretty wide range. And the price point is what enables that. So walk me through like the very beginning of starting an app like this. Because I mean, in your head, you're like, I want to do trivia for people. That would be cool. But uh, as I understand it, you're not a software engineer. You're not necessarily uh, savvy enough to build like this whole app from scratch. Uh, you're just a, a trivia fan, right? You're also probably not like a sales expert. You're not sure how to like land a deal with the Dallas Mavericks, et cetera. So what's like step number one for building water cooler trivia? 
I mean, step number one for sure is when I sent around that Google form in my internship, that taught me the most important parts. It was what's the right cadence weekly, not monthly, because weekly you have something to look forward to. It taught me that you can make free response work. I think everyone's too afraid of it. And that's why everything is multiple choice typically. Like I get it, it's really seductive that you can create things in real time in multiple choice, but it's also less fun. You don't feel as much joy because you're not pulling it out of the top of your tongue. You're just pulling it out of choosing C every time. And so that's how I started. And then when I wanted to get more serious, I used MailChimp and Google Forms. And so then I had like a variable for the company name and that was with four teams. My girlfriend at the time was at Macy's, like on a buyer department. I had a friend who was at a consultancy, I had a friend who was at an ad agency, and then I was at Citibike. So we were at four different-ish companies and there were variables in MailChimp where it would change the company name, but send the same questions to all them. And then on every Monday night, I would hand grade the responses in Google Sheets with like a yes, no, or like a checkbox column. That was enough, honestly. But when we wanted to make it real, then it was just sitting down and doing sort of the, what I think is appropriately celebrated as like the most fun part of an app is like whiteboarding what you want it to all look like. And so we basically said, look, we want to do that. We want to be able to add questions to a database. We want to be able to have a leaderboard that shows Cortland has won three of the last eight times. We want to be able to see the roster. We want a billing page. So I didn't realize it at the time, but it was product specs, I guess. But I, I would make all my design mockups and all product specs in Google Slides. So that's what I need. I would move shapes around and like crop like crazy. Yeah. And like inspect elements on a page because I didn't know how to install a font and then change the words on that page, take a screenshot of that page, paste that into Google Slides. So it was really turning what I was doing with no code, I guess, MailChimp and Google Forms into product specs. And my design tool of choice is Google Slides. And then fortunately, the engineer, my partner I was working with was good enough to turn that into real things. <laughs> Wow. That's insane because, I mean, you've done a lot of actual practical work to do all the research to figure out how do you do trivia well, how do you do open-ended questions, etc. And the other thing that's interesting about that is that for your two co-founders, I mean, it's like a side project for them still. They're both working full-time jobs and you are 100% of your time on water cooler trivia because you eventually quit your job at Lyft. Yeah. So basically, it was really slow, like really slow. We built the thing... And we were too afraid to turn pricing on, so it's free. And then four months later, we said, screw it. Like, uh, let's turn pricing on. And then someone paid, and that was a miracle. And we actually even hosted a trivia party where we pasted like seven, 70 questions on like folded pieces of paper in my apartment in Brooklyn. And like people would walk around and like keep score. And like, just because we made a $200 sale. I definitely spent more on like construction paper and time for that celebration. So in 2018, it went from $0 to about 10K ARR. And we would meet Tuesday nights. We all had real jobs. And then 2019 went from 10K to 20K ARR. So we all got a little more serious at our real jobs, I guess. So now we were meeting every other Tuesday, basically. Um, meeting in person in New York. Uh, a lot of 1 a.m. city bike rides across the Manhattan Bridge. I just felt like no one was churning out. Like it was a really sticky product. We had no money and we didn't know how to grow. And so people were just kind of finding out word of mouth. But no one was churning. So I was like, there's something here. Uh, so I made the decision to leave Lyft, where I was as a product manager. I go full-time on March 7th of 2020, which, I mean, that's a week that everyone remembers for obvious reasons. And my plan was to go full-time into water cooler trivia. They both stayed at their jobs. Uh, I wrote up a one-page contract that the three of us signed. And so they agreed to grant me more equity. And like, won't get into the specific terms, but they get it. Like, you'd rather own a smaller share of something worth a lot more than a bigger share of something worth essentially nothing. And so they were cool with that. And they said they kept working full-time. We've still met once a week on Zoom throughout the past year. But the one-year contract just ended of like, we're giving Colin this much of our equity. 
for committing one year. And so now I'm in like, what happens now phase? What was going through your mind at the time? I mean, like for you to quit your job, you're looking at the numbers, like no one's churning, but how big do you think this could possibly get? You know, like it wasn't, it wasn't at the point where it was like probably anywhere near your full-time salary lift. No. So I had a really specific time boxed goal. So my goal was to 10 exit and go from 20K error to 200K error in 12 months. So, you know, it's nice because, you know, you need to pick up each month in gross dollars or in percentage growth, whatever. You can do the math. We even wrote down, I wish we wrote down the odds we thought of hitting it, but we wrote down, here's the three paths that could happen. And then here's our default for what we do if we hit these targets. So one was like, get to 200K, scratching and clawing, used everything in our arsenal. It was so hard. And that would be default, sell the business. It was after six to nine months, like it's just not happening. We've tried everything we can think of and like we're, we're not even at 80 or 100K yet. And that would be default, sell the business, call and find a job. And then the third option, which lo and behold somehow happened, um, was hit 200K and still growing it. We even wrote numbers crazily. We said it hit 200K within 12 months and still growing at greater than 4% month over month ARR. At that point, need to really think about doubling down and like don't just look to sell, like this thing is working. It's pretty cool that you you mapped it out though, and you like pretty clearly cleared your goal because you're at 250k, which yeah, so you're, you're getting like 25 percent over your goal. What do you? What was your plan at the beginning to hit that goal? Because it's easy. Like I've been in this situation plenty of times with startups where I'm like, I'm gonna get to this number, and writing down a number on a page is very very different than having a plan for like how you're gonna get to that number. You know, are you gonna build more features? Are you gonna ramp up sales? Are you like raise prices? Like, what was your thought? If there was any sales to ramp up, I would have been all over that, but. I don't even know what that would mean. I'm definitely a huge believer that distribution matters not more than product, whatever. That's like a false stem binary. But I knew we were not going to have a ton of new features. Like Ryan was the only engineer. He has a real job. It's a serious engineering job. He's awesome and he knows our whole code base because he's written it all. So he can add new features, but not regularly. And so it's basically the worst possible ratio. If you think of me as just a product manager, it's like a one to 0.1 product manager to engineering ratio. It's like awful, right? right? Like I have like <laughs> stacks of things I want to build that have not gotten built, <laughs> you know, fully designed to Google slides, except I've graduated to Figma now. Honestly, it was just blind faith on the concept of elbow grease. I was like, I'm pretty sure only two things matter, elbow grease and throwing darts. Like you have to be able to just keep throwing darts. You're going to miss most. That's cool. Just got to keep grinding. So for me, that meant putting a demo button on the website. You know, we were afraid of it at first, but then I probably did 300 demos in the past year and that helped. It is kind of scary to put stuff like that on your website. Again, for the same reason that I was talking about earlier, like the prototypical indie hacker doesn't want to have to do a bunch of manual work to sell their app. You know, ideally people would sign up and just click buy and that would be it. It truly was elbow grease and throwing darts. And that's what we guessed. And we were right. Like some ROI was really good, but some could be a red herring. Like we sponsored, I listened to a podcast on the rise and fall of HQ trivia. And I listened to the first episode like last May. And I was like, this is amazing. It's just really well reported, long form narrative journalism. I love it. And also it's a fascinating story. And there were no ads in the podcast. And I was like, this is insane. And so I DM'd the host on Twitter and I was like, hey, can I sponsor the whole series? And it was from The Ringer who just bought, bought by Spotify. So I'm like, this is part of some serious ad operation, right? Or whatever. And it turns out it was not. <laughs> she was like, we're in the process of like moving our ads to Spotify, but it hasn't happened yet. So like, we don't really know what's going on. <laughs> I mean, it was a little more professional than that. But like, yeah. Anyway, I sponsored the last five episodes of like the six part series for 2,500 bucks. It's super paid off. They were host read, really good ads. We got like this amazing ROI on it, like a 5X ROI or something. And it's like still in the podcast. So we still have things coming 10 months later. And then it was in the like best podcast list end of the year, blah, blah, blah. 
And so we were like, this is amazing. Let's double down. And so we also sponsored this like rise and fall of WeWork podcast that Bloomberg put out. And we're like, this is it. And we spent like five or six times as much money and complete dud, like literally zero sales. No one cared. <laughs> oh, oh my God. Oh, what a red herring. We were like podcasts are the future. And it turns out just like the alignment with people listening to HQ and remembering doing trivia with their coworkers in the office was so perfect for our product. Did you uh, like do like a step three? Like, let's go find other podcasts to talk about trivia. We have over the years sponsored like super niche ones. There's a thing called Trivial Warfare. That is, I won't speak to their numbers because I don't know them, but it's a very small investment on our part and we love sponsoring them because they're awesome. They just are a couple of friends who do a trivia game each week on a podcast. There's this other one that I've gotten obsessed with. And if anyone road trips, it's called Pod Quiz. He's done over 800 episodes over 15 years. It's this guy in Britain and it's like really high quality. And my fiance and I have driven a lot this year and we've done hundreds of episodes and you can like keep score for yourself. Our best is like 18 out of 20. And it's super fun. Nice. I email him. I'm like, you have no sponsors. I love what you do. It's amazing. And I mean, bless him. He's like, I don't do ads. I'm pure. I mean, he didn't say I'm pure, but <laughs> I'm pure. it's kind of like what I interpreted into it. <laughs> right. Yeah. I love pod quiz, but they didn't want our money, which is fine. Was there any like one uh, dart you threw in particular that just like has been responsible for you being able to grow your revenue 10x or have there been just like a few, you know, like that podcast ad really worked out and like maybe a few other things. Like it's like it's a plurality game, not a majority game for sure. SEO helps. We invest in content marketing, but stereotypes are grounded in truth. And the stereotype that SEO takes a long time is real. Uh, you got to put a lot of content out there for a long time. So it feels really good. Like all of the endorphins fire in my brain when an article goes to the front page of Hacker News. But then, you know, you typically get zero to one free trial signups out of it. So it's kind of like, that's a good example of what I think feels like good marketing versus isn't actually. We sponsored a thing called HR Summer School, which was like a series of lectures. And we did like a, a lunch break trivia game every day. And there were like hundreds of HR professionals there that helped. Slack featured us in a couple posts. PR is super helpful. Like just to put the numbers in perspective for folks, we were in a Fast Company article recently, just listed as like one of five things to do virtually. I don't know. It was not literature. It was a listicle. It drove the equivalent of like just this mid article placement of us, like 3K in ARR, just wow. based on like all our conversion and funnel stuff. So, I mean, you can do the math backwards there and it's like, oh, it's probably worth investing in PR more. Right. But we paid for PR firm and it like they got two not very good placements for us. And then all of our really good placements was just me cold emailing journalists, just straight up elbow grease and just badgering them. It's cool having a low churn business where it doesn't really matter where you get your customers from. They tend to keep doing trivia because it means that like you can kind of rest easy not having found this one channel to end all channels that works, you know, forever until the end of time. You'd be like, oh, this yeah. end has kind of stopped working, but like that's fine because all the customers I got are still going to stick around and you just got to keep doing the, el the elbow grease thing, as you call it, you know, keep hitting different targets, keep hitting different channels and like, you know that you're kind of slowly filling up this bucket full of water, I guess, literally full of money <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. to get to some to some goal. What is that goal for you? You know, why do this? How big can water cooler trivia get? Like, I actually think this can be so much bigger. So the product right now can tend to 20x, no doubt, no question, no improvements. Doesn't mean it will happen. It certainly doesn't mean it would happen quickly, but it can do that. Like we only have 800 groups and the diversity of companies that use it is pretty remarkable. But now I'm realizing... We got super lucky with the tailwinds from work from home shift, but it's opening up a, bun a bunch of doors, right? As everyone knows, like what is the future of hybrid work and this and that. And one thing we did is it's asynchronous team building. And when I look around, pretty much everything is synchronous. 
and it's everyone get together. I don't think people like having things on their calendars. I think it's anxiety inducing for a lot of folks. And if one of the benefits is remote and hybrid work is like more control over, you know, managing the balance between professional and personal lives, I think asynchronous everything is better. I think team building doesn't have to be an exception. And so we've really worked hard to build asynchronous team building as like a core concept where we'll like feature little anecdotes of how Cortland knew that really hard question in the results. So you're still like kind of getting to know Cortland and sparking conversation, even though he answered the trivia with his morning coffee at 9 a.m. and I did it over lunch with my fiance. So I'm thinking a lot bigger now about asynchronous team building in general. And I also think that a lot of trivia, trivia is a much bigger industry than people realize. You don't really think of trivia as an industry. It just sounds silly. It's not like databases, but there's a ton. There's so many virtual trivia event platforms. And I don't think a lot of them are very good. You kind of need Zoom and then like a Discord or a Slack and then like Google Forms and like this and that. I think you can do a lot better. And so working on a live event platform, basically, as like an add-on to our subscription business. And then I think there's a lot you can do within that. I think there's more games you can do. Not everyone loves trivia. There's a lot of other wordplay games I'm a huge fan of that we sneak in as fake trivia questions sometimes. Yeah, I'm thinking a lot bigger now, which is exciting and admittedly hard for me. Like I'm somebody who I think thrives in working within constraints. Yeah, constraints are good. And it's smart like to have constraints because they get you, they're the things that have gotten you to where you are now. And the danger is that like, you know, once you get too starry eyed, you lose the constraints, you sort of lose a little bit of your magic. And uh, I mean, I've, I've dealt with the same thing with indie hackers, right? My goal was very similar to yours in the beginning, get to $10,000 a month in revenue. You know, I got like somewhere close. And then ended up joining Stripe. And then it was like, all right, boom, your goals are completely different. They're a thousand times bigger. Yeah. And for you, it's like, you're, you're like at the beginning, I love trivia. I want to do this cool side project with some friends. You know, now you're thinking about, let's think about the entire trivia, asynchronous team building <laughs> industry, you know? It's, it's made me more opinionated, which is fun, right? Like it's fun to be opinionated and feel like you can be opinionated. I'm more willing to say, I think multiple choice trivia sucks now than I was like 12 months ago. Like, I'm more willing to, yeah, I guess have stronger opinions. Are there any like uh, guiding philosophies or mental models or like books that sort of guide how you run your company or how you live your life? I have no idea where I read this. I'm sure it's just basic science, uh, but that there's two kinds of stress, stress and distress, like E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S and distress. And that the more you can have more of the stress in your life be you stress and distress and like choose not obviously most important things in life you can't choose. But the more you can think about stress as like a, a positive and not negative thing, man, that has been so liberating just in general for like every step of my life from a presentation in a company like that I'm working at to personal relationships to anything. But the biggest is probably been the book Moonwalking with Einstein, which is about memory palaces and remembering things. One of my favorites. Super cool book. Yeah, it's amazing. Joshua Fuller, I mean, him and his two brothers are all phenomenal writers. Chesha Fora also founded Atlas Obscura, which is this super cool website. But the book's about memory palaces, but I don't really care about it in terms of that and like remembering trivia facts. But it has this one line that's monotony compresses time, novelty unfolds it. And so I'm a huge believer in like introducing novelty in any way, shape, or form to just like multiply the number of things you remember. Because like essentially our memory of our life is just like how many signposts you have to look back on. And so if you do more like weird, interesting, different novel things, you feel like you're living a longer life, which like ultimately is the most important thing. Like people talk about like biological time, like I want to live till I'm 90. It's like, would way rather have like a super densely memorable life to 70. It just matters more. There's a, uh, I did an episode like maybe a year and a half ago now with the creator of an app called One Second Every Day. 
And the whole idea between his, behind his app is basically you record a one second video every day and then, you know, eventually you stitch it together and you got like, I don't know, like a six minute video of your entire year. And the cool sort of side effect of it is not just having this video, it's that it, the video itself motivates you to do more interesting things. Because you don't want to have like the same one, like, you know, in May during the pandemic, my one second video every day was me and my computer. I'm like, oh, this is, this has got to change, you know? And like a month later, I was on the road doing a road trip, looking at a bunch of different stuff, in part because I wanted my one second video to be different. I wanted to actually like live a different life. So I'm right there with you, like novelty, what did you say, unfolds time. Yeah, and yeah. gives you just more memories and that makes it seem like your life is much longer. Yeah, I, I have a thing. This is the f- sixth year where I buy a physical calendar, right? Like a wall calendar. Right? I'll write one thing each day and the only rule was it couldn't be about work. And it's like in Sharpie and it's like two words. And like literally I have to write one thing each day. But it's a tiny square and I have a Sharpie. So like truly we're talking like micro tweet like things here. And I can look back in the last six years and look at one thing every single day. And like I'm super flawed and imperfect. So sometimes I don't do it for a week, especially when I've been on kind of the move this past year. And so then I use basically the photos in my phone, my calendar, uh, a run or fitness tracking app to just like recreate, like there must've been one thing that day. Like there had to be one. And some days <laughs> looking back, I'm like, oh, that was a that was an arid day. Not much going on. But it's so nice to look back and find things. And it's like a, I think of it as like a poor man's, like a poor man's time hop. But like, I'll look back to past year's calendar sometime and be like, ooh, April 13th, 2018. And it'll be like, lunch and walk with ju or something because i just do initials for people and i'll text ju and be like yo (laughs) poor poor man's time hop (laughs) yeah i know facebook used to do that thing all the time where you would sign on and it would would say you know five years ago today you and this friend were tagged in this photo you know tag both of you uh and i'm never on facebook anymore but that was kind of cool it was like a good way to connect you to your friend apple's been doing more and more of it where they put um with like the widgets and stuff on the new iOS home screens where they'll like surface photos to you that like, I don't know, it's generous probably to call it machine learning, but I'm sure it is somewhere deep in the trenches. But I feel like they're trying to do that. Yeah, my Google Photos is constantly, oh, it's like six years ago today, you were doing this like this fun thing. Don't you wish you were back there? And I'm like, in my apartment during the pandemic, like, yes. <laughs> As a matter of <laughs> fact, you, I Google. do. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for feeding me into your sentiment analysis uh, algorithms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I feel very taken care of. Yeah. <laughs> I just Googled uh, U-stress because I'd never heard of this term that you brought up earlier, like these two different types of stress. It's totally real. It says U-stress is a kind of doable stress. Uh, this article is apparently written by a Dr. Core. So if they're a doctor, it must be true. Uh, you're faced with a challenge, but a challenge that you know you can handle and you actually look forward to handling that challenge. So you feel out of your comfort zone in a good way. Yeah, let's do it live. Yeah, we'll do it live. And that to me like encapsulates kind of the startup journey. You know, you in March of 2020 quitting your job and saying, I'm going to 10x my revenue and I'm not sure how I'm going to do it. But like, I'm looking forward to trying it. You know, like that's the good kind of stress that you want as a founder. I was talking to my brother about this actually yesterday. He was talking about how so many people structure their lives to avoid having problems. But what you really want to do is just have good problems in your life. Right? You want to have problems that you really you wake up excited to solve because problems are kind of the thing that pull you forward in life. They get you like motivated to do something. You know, If you have no problems, then what do you do? Right? You just kind of sit around and get fatter. Uh, but if you have bad problems, then you're just, you know, that, I guess that's distress and you feel terrible, but you have good problems. Then you wake up every day, super motivated, super excited. You know, you have something that you're running toward. And I've tried to structure my life like that for the last 10 years. You know, what can I, what problem can I have that I actually want to work on? We were talking a few weeks back and you also mentioned another idea that I thought was really cool, which is the peak end rule. 
which is like you know, kind of a common idea from psychology. I'll let you explain it because you actually kind of woven it into the way that you live your life, which is a lot more than I've done. I just sort of read, read it and then forgot about it. But you've been like living the peak end rule. Yeah. Well, I mean, basically read it and forget it is my mantra for everything. But then when you read it the sixth time, you uh, it's harder to forget. <laughs> so basically, as I noted before, like I'm really interested in how we remember things and not in a like I want to study neurons my whole life way, but just in a like how does it impact my life and how can it make me happier and those that I love happier. The way I think about memory is based on the psychological concept of peak end rule, which is what do we remember from an experience? So like think of one experience, like a, a sports game you went to, a live event or a job or a grade in school, like a whole eighth grade or whatever, you're probably going to remember two things on average. You're going to remember the peak. So either the like, I think of it as like the spikiest experience, like the most bad or the most good. Yeah. The most extreme part that happened. Yeah. It could be anything. And then you think of the end, like people just think about their endings a lot and what, how you typically remember that experience. So like there's been psychological studies of how bad or good you remember that experience essentially as the average of the peak and the end. And so it's really hard. It's impossible in a good way to control the peak of anything, right? It's like going to a, a Cubs game at Wrigley Field and like, I choose for there to be a grand slam right now and the whole crowd to erupt. It's like, no, you can't choose that. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to happen or it's not. But I think you can control the ending. And I think people can control the ending more and it ends up like weirdly, perversely improving your memory of so many things in life. Like if you control the ending, you know, people talk about like going out on top, ending too early instead of ending too late. I'm a massive fan. And like I've seen it, I think I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago, it really clicked for me in a business sense. When I saw it with, I was at Bain and Company, like consulting company, and people leaving, they just treat you so well. It's like the greatest exit experience. They like, there's for sure some self-interest there. They want you to, when you're an executive somewhere else, to hire them as a client or to like have you boomerang back as an employee. So like, you know, it's not like purely altruistic, but they treat you really well on the way out the door. You know, people send really nice, thoughtful goodbye emails. You know, I know this stuff happens at a lot of companies, but even like the exit interview process and helping you find a new job and this and that is really excellent. And I think it's what allows you to be regarded as like a really good employer, just because you control the end experience. You're not going to control their peak experience because maybe they had a lot of 3 a.m. nights in a row making slides, but you can control the end experience. And if that colors disproportionately, 24 months of labor, mm. then wow, that's super good ROI. <laughs> yeah, I have a friend who, who does this. He came to visit me from Russia and he I mean, he had a few people to visit in the States, but he came from Russia. So I was like, oh, you're going to be here for like a week, you know, a few days. He's like, no, nah, I'm going to be here for two nights. And I'm like, two nights? And he's like, look, always understay your welcome, never overstay your welcome, because then the end is going to be like, it was too, it's too soon. You just got here. Everyone's going to want you to stay. And then the memory of that trip is going to be great. But you stay for three or four nights and people are going to be kind of like, oh yeah, it's, I'm completely ready for you to go now. So, <laughs> and then that's like the ending of the trip and it sucks. Yeah. I, I think about it a lot for trips, especially. And so one thing I do that I stole from someone is the alpha, the game at the end of every trip I take. So like my fiance and I just lived in New Orleans for a month and we just did the alpha game about New Orleans. So you come up with some memory for all 26 letters to represent that trip. And you do like a long list. So for A, you know, we or like for B, we listed beignet and this and that, and like 20 things. And then we go back through it and choose one thing. And now you have 26 things to remember that trip. You do it in the airport or the car on the way out of town. And then you take a picture of it and you can like make it a poster and not do whatever. But like you have so explicitly controlled the ending of that trip by like summing it up into the 26 best food items and inside jokes and places you went and like people you met and like <laughs> it's amazing and like that will color the entire memory of your trip which is like a little internally manipulative but alas yeah 
Are you doing this somehow with uh, with water cooler trivia? Are there like ways that you're affecting the endings of you running this business to make sure that it's a good memory? Well, one thing is I really want to do what we call it's such a lame name and I love it. Quarterly learnings. It's this feature idea that I've had forever. So it's like quarterly earnings, but with now. And it's like the year in review from like Spotify or like Lyft or whatever. But it basically just sums up the last three months of trivia. So we email like Indie Hackers team, like, here's your quarterly learnings. Like Cortland was the rookie of the quarter. Like he was new to the team and like did the best of trivia. Like most improved was Colin. And like the worst at geography was so-and-so. And like the best anecdote was so-and-so. So I really love the idea of like capping a quarter. Um, just giving time frames on things is really helpful. And like perpetuity, weekly trivia is really nice. But we have like the leaderboard that like resets every month and like being able to do short term and long term duration simultaneously is like really important, I think. So I think about endings in that way. Cool. Well, I'm a huge fan. I should sign up for Indie Hackers. I've never done, I've never been really that good at trivia myself. But if if we add a custom category and get you making Indie Hackers <laughs> related, related trivia questions, I'm pretty sure I can do uh, pretty well. At the end of these podcasts, I always ask the same question, Colin, which is what have you learned from your journey that you think fledgling indie hackers who are just getting started can, can take away? Yeah, I mean, I think it is as, not as simple, but I think it's as real as just say yes to life. The reason trivia started is because, water cooler trivia started, because honestly, I went out on a Wednesday night to watch a US soccer game and I invited this friend. And then we were just talking about these emails I had been sending. And he was like, I have an engineer roommate. And I can't like reverse engineer a lot of what has gone well and really fortunate for us. But in terms of just saying yes to things, like send the cold email, do the thing that is an outside chance of paying off. I started it by at a bar one night writing down 10 questions. I turned my phone off and I wrote 10 trivia questions that I didn't know the answer to. That's the best way to write trivia, 10 things you want to know the answer to. And it was just because like I was biking home and it looked like the bar looked fun. And so I sat alone and wrote 10 questions on a napkin. And I think the more you just say yes, the more I consider those darts thrown, like good things can happen. I'm not sure how much I believe in like, luck is the residue of preparation or whatever, but I'm certainly a believer in like good things is the residue of trying a lot of things that could end up good. Yeah. Your framework, elbow grease and, and darts. I love it. Yeah. Elbow grease and darts. That's life. That's life. All right, Colin. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Can you let listeners know where they can go to find out more about water cooler trivia and your very ambitious future plans? For sure. So it's watercoolertrivia.com. Uh, it is exactly what it sounds like. We also recently purchased trivia.co. So like T-R-I-V-I-A dot C-O. This is admittedly kind of massive buyer's remorse on this one. The negotiation went faster than expected, <laughs> but it's kind of cool and we're trying to figure out what to do with it. <laughs> so next up, we are moving and shaking. We are growing to a lot more teams and going to build probably additional games and introduce our live trivia format sooner rather than later. We are pondering how to grow the business capital-wise too. It's kind of like the... The, the problem that I think all indie hackers would love to face. Do I raise some money? Uh, do I raise some debt? Do I double down again? But I took no salary the last year and you can only do that so many years. And uh, so. All right, well, I'll be following along and maybe you can come back on the show. If you end up uh, emailing me to tell me you're at a million dollars in ARR, <laughs> hey, Cortland, get me back on the show. <laughs> well, thanks again, Colin, for coming on. Of course, Cortland, thanks. Thanks.